if they still released DVDs with additional director's commentary, which they should, by the way. I know that's not what we're here to discuss today, but I really miss that about DVD culture is you don't get director's commentaries anymore. To answer your question, um, yes, it is uh, some of my favorite letters from my uh, almost five-year tenure as the Dear Prudence at Slate. There's a new Dear Prudence now. Dear Prudence continues on without me. Uh, and, and as well as reflections on my time there, um, how the job changed me ways that letters changed on the job, uh, certain things that I noticed cropping up frequently. Um, and, and it's all just sort of wrapped up neatly. Yeah, I want to touch on that. You kind of mentioned there that, you know, prudence continues on after you. Of course, it also existed before you. How did you navigate, I guess, kind of, or did, did you have to, or could you make it your own, I guess? How did you navigate inhabiting the character and the persona of prudence? Yeah, it's a slightly unique situation because often with advice columns, you get something like Ann Landers or Dear Abby, which is one person writes it until they die and then their kid takes over. Or you get some of the newer advice columns like Dear Sugar that are really strongly associated with a single person. And it's less often that you have a particular advice column persona who uh, is is. Uh, taken up by multiple people over the course of a few years. So there have been uh, about five or six prudences before I I stepped into the ring. And I had a certain sense of my version of Dear Prudence was going to be like 30% more sensible but me. Um, And the 30% felt pretty important. Like more than 30% would feel fake and inauthentic and less than 30% felt like I would just be smashing people with a hammer. Yeah. Is that is that like an impulse you can have to avoid when you get some of those letters that are a little bit wild? I did yesterday during a live show in Auckland. Uh, somebody started reading a letter out loud and I interrupted them and stopped and said, just hit him with your car. <laughs> and that's not always advice that you want to be giving people. So, yeah, it's it's not my go to um, mob violence, but it, it does help to um, have a persona that kind of reins it in. Yeah, I mean, you were quite, in your responses, quite, quite direct. Um, My, honestly, favorite line from the whole book, uh, I'm going to read it, actually, because I was like, I just, I just love this. Um, Someone was writing to you, and they were talking about them and their kind of younger husband and going, well, if my husband was a woman and I was a man, maybe it would be different. And you wrote, for whatever it's worth, I don't think it's especially useful to imagine a gendered swap version of one's present romantic relationship. You don't have a gender swap version of your relationship unless you're both considering transition as my wife and I did a few years ago and which I heartily recommend. So I guess you're kind of really inhabiting the the character there and making it your own. I, I think in part because I would sometimes get people who would frame their own question as if I'm not sure how I feel about it, but if my situation were gender swapped, I then know how I would feel about it. So I both wanted to kind of gesture towards why do people sometimes say that? Is that a useful impulse? And then I also wanted to put in a plug for getting sort of like ships passing in the night sex changes just because it's fun and not everyone gets to do it. And I think everyone should change sex at least once. Okay, there we go. So I guess um, kind of building on that, um, another thing that I noticed kind of a theme throughout the book is sometimes people, you know, they write questions and there's these these justifications, like with the, the gender-swapped relationship or, you know, um, yeah, I guess this context which kind of makes it clear that they've already got an answer to their own question and they're kind of looking to you to either, you know, dispel that notion they have or reinforce what they're thinking. 
Mm-hmm. I guess how do you how do you kind of approach those kind of questions? It's it's difficult. Sometimes you do get a sense that a letter writer has a pretty clear idea of what they want to do already. Sometimes you get a sense that they're looking for a sort of ruling on either is this fair that this is happening to me or am I allowed to feel the way that I'm feeling? And those were kind of great letters because you'd, you'd get to start with like good news. You're always allowed to feel the way that you feel. What next? Um, and sometimes it genuinely seemed like somebody wrote in with no idea of what to do. That wasn't the most common dynamic, but I would say more frequently than you might think, people seemed genuinely unsure. And and that always felt very, um, like I wanted to take that really seriously if somebody wasn't sure what to do. But it, sometimes it was helpful or, or at least nice if somebody wrote in and it was clear, you're already going to do what you're going to do. Nothing I can say really affects you. So this is just like a fun thought exercise. I can't I can't make you do anything. And I, I always appreciated that reminder, too, because sometimes people would write in with really difficult or thorny uh, situations. And I could feel very, God, I need to make sure that I give them the best possible advice. And it helped to remember, you're not the boss of them, you know, that you don't know who they are. You can't follow up. You can't, you know, go to their house and, and live with them for the next week and make sure they do what you want. Like, you can just say something and then they're free to ignore it. Mm, I know that was also something you kind of touched on, right, where you you give someone advice and then you don't know if it worked out. You don't even know if the situation was real. How do you how do you manage that? Like well, then, that not getting, I guess, not getting closure. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing was I got paid either way. So even if none of the questions were real, if the whole time it was one guy in a basement churning out a series of, you know, increasingly improbable scenarios, I still got paid. So that worked out for me pretty well. Um, but I think it does help to have a slightly light touch. You hope for uh, updates, and every once in a while I would get one, and that felt so delightful. I loved hearing from people afterwards. Even occasionally, most of the people who write back with updates are pretty happy with how things turned out, but every once in a while somebody would write back either, things didn't turn out great, or I really hated the advice that you gave me. I thought you sounded like a jackass, and I just wanted to let you know that. Um, which is not my favorite kind of uh, update to receive, but at least it was like, oh, you've been thinking of me that's nice Um, but yeah some of it you just had to sort of like let go and hope for the best and just accept that you will not know and it's possible that I've like crossed paths with someone on the street who once asked my advice and neither of us recognize each other and there's just no way to know but um, yeah you do have to let go of that which is hard because one of the qualities that makes you want to become an advice columnist is deep curiosity and nosiness and letting go of that nosiness is, is not something that comes easily or intuitively to me yeah, I mean, look, there's, um, when I heard that you were coming into sin and someone was like, Lachlan, do you want to do this interview? I was like, yes, I give people unsolicited advice all the time. Like, absolutely. I want to learn from the pro here. Do people take it? No. Do they give you updates? Uh, they they do. They give me updates. And I'm like, this is just getting worse and worse. Did you ever watch When Harry Met Sally? No, I have not. There's, it's a great movie. You should. Okay. But there's a recurring gag with Carrie Fisher, who plays one of Meg Ryan's best friends, and she spends most of the movie... Uh, talking about this guy she's seeing who's married and she keeps telling these stories of like and then I realized he just spent like $500 on a new couch with his wife or he just bought her this lingerie and then somebody else says he's never going to leave her and she always pauses and like tilts her head and says you're right you're right I know you're right and then the next scene she brings it up again and they say it again and it's this wonderful little ritual they all have where she knows it and they know it and she keeps doing it yeah no that is um that's a ritual I have with a lot of people, actually. I mean, also, that was actually one of the lines I picked up from your book. One letter kind of started with, um, when I met Ryan, I knew he had a girlfriend because I met them both at the same time. Well, that'll do it. How do you deal with that level of, of denial? 
I mean, I, I, I wish I could say, yeah, how ridiculous to live in that degree of denial. I have no idea what that feels like. But I really do think that somebody in that situation is giving us all a real gift, which is like a willingness to look like a fool in front of other people and a willingness to be honest about something that a lot of us try to downplay in our own lives. I think for the most part, a lot of the way that we engage with other people is trying to save face, trying not to look foolish, trying to look like we're in control. And so somebody who is willing to say, I know what you're going to say about this. I know how it looks. I know how it sounds. Here's what's happening anyways, is really useful. And that's not to say everyone should go out and start like picking up married men and making their lives more difficult. I don't necessarily think that's the way to do it either. Well, there go my plans. I mean, you certainly can. I'm not going to stop you. No one can. Um, But, you know, there is a real gift and vulnerability in people who are willing to present their problems for public dissection, especially because so much of advice columns is about why would you do that? That doesn't look like the sensible thing to do. Um, And I think a lot of us can, at least on some level, even if it's not necessarily I'm sleeping with this married guy, can remember a romantic relationship where everyone else in your life said, this is not a good idea. And you said, sure, sure, sure. And it didn't change what you wanted to do at all. When you are kind of, I guess, approaching those kind of letters where maybe it is a little more difficult to kind of meet that writer where they're at and empathize with them because their situation is so ridiculous, like, has that ever been a challenge for you? Is there ever a letter you're like, well, I don't even know where to start with this one? I think the probably the worst advice I've ever given has been if it's come from a place of like contempt or dismissal. Um, and I think probably the the worst thing you can do as an advice columnist is just get on your high horse and tell someone off because it's just it's really cheap and it's it's clearly what they're sort of gunning for, like they kind of want to be shamed. Um, And so I think that those are actually some of the letters that were probably the least useful where I said, like, let me wag my finger at you. You're not doing right. Um, And I think it's more useful, especially if somebody already knows they're not doing right to kind of think about like, well, what can you actually do? I'm not going to tell you to change the way you feel overnight, but what what should you do with this mixture of shame and desire? Um, Or what is a reasonable thing to do when it comes to discipline and paranoia, Um, like a fear of a loss of pleasure? I think that's something that really does panic a lot of people is, I know this is wrong. I know this makes me feel ashamed. I know this isn't good. I know describing it makes me look foolish. But the idea of losing this hope of future pleasure feels so um, frightening that I can't imagine my life if I do it. Like, I can't give up. You know, we all have a married man, right? Maybe your married man is something else. We all have that one stupid thing that we don't want to give up. Yeah, okay, this is getting real. So, <laughs> um, I guess we've kind of talked a little bit about, I guess, the qualities that make a good advice giver, that empathy, that directness. I guess you kind of, one of the kind of qualities that Slate saw in you before you started was that you're so funny, you know, writing that kind of kind. The, the literary the literary humor website. I mean, I've, I've been laughing today, so, yeah. I guess what are the other kind of, I guess, because you, you said that there are no specific qualities of an advice columnist. There's no kind of specific things that people are looking for, but I guess what has helped you? I think another one, especially for this particular advice column, since a big part of the Dear Prudence uh, like machine has to do with uh, a, live sh- a live chat uh, every week, is a willingness to abandon 
your quickly formed judgments of a moment earlier, because I would not infrequently get an update during the live chat saying, oh, here's some more information I forgot to include in the letter that would totally change my answer. Or a bunch of people would write in and say, that's crazy that you, Danny, just said that because you forgot about X, Y, Z. Or occasionally somebody would say like, you misread line seven. This is the opposite of the situation you think it is. So you both need to be able to come up fairly quickly with some idea of what you think someone ought to do, but you also need to be willing to change your mind um, and adapt to fit the situation. And knowing when to do that versus when to stick to your guns can be really challenging. So that sort of combination of like nimbleness um, and flexibility. Yeah, I guess that's something kind of with, um, you know, with print, with a magazine, it's very slow kind of paced, like there's maybe a magazine a month, that kind of thing where online it is so quick, like you're always getting that, you know, that very quick response with Mm -hmm. the comments, all that kind of stuff. So I guess, yeah, how do you kind of how do you approach that? Does it change how you approach anything? I think so. Certainly when I grew up, I mostly read advice columns in the newspaper um, as a little like eight-year-old, like before I read the comics over my little Cheerios, I, I read the advice column. Um, and and so, but by the time I was actually doing it, there was no print element involved, whatever. So I think there's a degree to which it just really helps to remember, you know, you do your best to be helpful. And beyond that, if they ignore you, you have no real power. And so I think bearing that in mind of the most most I can do is provide someone with like some thought-provoking ideas. I'm not going to ruin anyone's life. And by that same token, I'm not going to single-handedly save anyone's life. Like I'm not a lifeguard on a beach. I'm not going to like breathe life back into someone who nearly drowned. Um, this is just like a fun, whimsical little uh, temporary confessional box that we step into where everyone stares at us and then we both leave it forever. So it's a, sort of a mixture of like the confessional and cruising and like the Lord of Misrule during Twelfth Night. Um, obviously not nearly as sexy and exciting as any of those things, but with little elements of each. Um, and so knowing that it is a temporary coming together and then going apart, I, I think is really necessary. Yeah, I guess as well with um, with print, a lot of those kind of print publications have a very specific audience, like a very specific niche, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure slated as well. But mm-hmm. being the internet, being more accessible, I guess you're starting to see maybe you know, more groups who haven't kind of engaged with this kind of content before, more marginalized people Mm -hmm. as well. Do you feel like you had, while you were writing as Prudence, this kind of um, a responsibility for, to those kind of new and emerging kind of audiences? I, I think I did encounter more of that. Certainly, I, I don't remember a ton of transsexuals writing into Dear Abby when I was a kid, and I got more during my tenure as Dear Prudence, although also part of that was just when I myself transitioned and came out, you know, that brings people around. It's sort of like if you have an orange car, you start noticing more orange cars. I keep bringing up cars during this publicity tour, and I shouldn't. I don't know cars. I should not be trapping myself in car metaphors. Um, But yeah, I, I certainly got more. And I don't think I felt like an especially unique responsibility so much as just, I want to be careful with everyone. They're entrusting me with their stories, and I wasn't always able to do that perfectly, but feeling like I want to do my best to give them the best advice possible within this pretty limited time span. No one's going to get, like, I've meditated on this one for seven days and seven nights without eating and drinking only, like, tears from the moon, and now I have the perfect answer for you. I was like, well, I've thought about this for the next, the last 20 minutes, and here's my best idea. Yeah, amazing. So I guess I, I do want to touch on that, right? Like, you know, I guess the type of people and the kind of people and the kind of questions you get has changed over the span of, I guess, decades. But 
have you, I guess, did you notice any changes in those kind of couple of years while you were writing and you were kind of at the helm of this? I mean, some things truly never changed. Some some things were just like I was getting questions of like my wonderful boyfriend who does the most deranged thing you've ever heard of in your life. What do I do? That was always a real staple of the column. And in some ways, I hope that never goes away. Although obviously, in other ways, I hope it does because I feel really bad for those people in those relationships. Um, you know, I, I think, again, just by virtue of the fact that uh, I transitioned and also became estranged from my family throughout the course of the column, I ended up hearing a little bit more from people in one or both of those camps. But th- those are the types of people who already write in a lot to advice columns. You know, thinking about getting a sex change and thinking about not talking to your mother, those are classic write to an advice column problems. So I don't even know that I could strongly say that I got an unusual amount of people uh, on those fronts because that's that's like what the advice column is there for. Yeah, no, I guess starting to kind of wrap this up, I guess you also write about like there's all of these kind of continuing themes throughout that are never going to change with, you know, dating, relationships, all that kind of stuff. There was one question I kind of picked out where you kind of rephrased someone who'd written it and you were like, this is what you're actually asking me. Mm. And I went, that's actually probably a very pertinent question to all of the young people listening who are maybe, you know, pursuing their, you know, their first relationships or that kind of thing. Um, The question was, how am I supposed to talk about what I want unless I know in advance that someone else wants the same thing? I'm going to put that question to you right now. Yeah. I mean, that was something that I really wanted to try to do for most of my dating throughout my teens and 20s was I will decide what I want once I found out what you – it's, it's the classic, like, what do you want for dinner? I'll, I'll decide what mm. I want for dinner once you've said what you want for dinner. But I need to remain a blank slate until you delineate the boundaries. And only then do I want to get in touch with my desires. Um, and as you might imagine, I mean, that might be fine for occasional deciding where to go for dinner. But when it comes to, like, cultivating intimacy and like building relationships with other people it's a terrible idea it doesn't work if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking but it's going to work when i do it i'm so sorry you're wrong it won't work it will backfire you will regret it but you're allowed to do it it's fine i can't stop you um but i I definitely spent a lot of my 20s in relationships what was like what do you want then i'll think about what i want which of course didn't actually mean i wanted things any less it just meant that i was more alienated from my own desires and more resentful without any idea of why i was resentful and then taking it out on the other person who had frankly done very little to deserve it. It wasn't like they were going around saying, you, Danny, must not think about what you want until I tell you. Like this was something I was doing. I was in, I was the president of the why don't you stop hitting yourself club. And so I do think that's very much a stop hitting yourself question of I want to be in alignment with the will of someone else. And the best way to do that is to clamp myself down until I know what they want and then flow into their channels. Um, and I really wish that that resulted in deep personal satisfaction and mutually healthy and satisfying relationships. But unfortunately, it doesn't. Okay, I guess distilling what was probably years of self-interrogation and therapy, how, how would you recommend people move past that and out of that, out of that frame of mind? I mean, the good news is it will probably lead to a pretty spectacular breakup. Um, and, Fantastic. you know, you'll feel pretty embarrassed and, and unhappy with how things went. And maybe eventually you'll start thinking of, well, I hope my next breakup goes a little bit better than that. And that can sometimes be like the project of, of self-discovery is like, maybe I can't avoid breakups forever, but I would like to never go through a breakup quite like that one again. What are some small steps I can take in the meantime? I love small steps. Small steps are beautiful. 
Um, and it just, I think it gets easier as you get older. You get less fragile about it. You get less um, sort of like starry-eyed about the possibility of total union of thought, which is not to say that you let go of desire for like deep knowledge of other people or deep intimacy, but you no longer necessarily think I, it comes through my... Do you remember the old like Marx Brothers routine where there's supposed to be a mirror between two people? The mirror has been broken. One person doesn't want the other one to know it. So they step out and they they perfectly mirror the other person's movements to try to fool them into thinking there's a mirror. You just eventually you get tired of doing that dance. And you realize like no one was asking me to do that. I can I can put the mirror dance down and try something else. Amazing. So, look, we'll leave it there, but where are you heading this month? Because it's been quite a busy month for you already. You've literally just landed in Melbourne. By the time this airs, you will have left Melbourne. That's right. If you're listening to this, I'm already out of town. You missed it. You missed it, friends. Um, yeah, so next I'm going to Sydney on Wednesday, and that's it. It's just three places, really. It was Auckland, it's here in Melbourne, and it's Sydney. So it's exciting, but, you know, it's not. I'm not captain of the jet set. 